We've got one other elephant in the room to uh, start with, and I think that is probably the best place for us to start. So as I stand up in this particular place at this particular time to preach this particular sermon, I'm aware there's going to be a little resistance. Now, it's not true for everyone in the room, but for at least some of you, I know that I'm standing up to bat with two strikes against me. The first one is that I'm not Pastor Bob, and the second is that you're dreading the idea of hearing a sermon about money. Now, there is nothing in the world I can do about the first one. That's, that's one against me. But I think I can help you with the second one. So we're going to start by me telling you what we're not doing today. The first thing is that I will not be telling you that God hates money or that Jesus is anti-possessions. I won't be telling you it's a sin to have a house or to save for retirement. I won't be asking you to sell everything you have and give all of your money to the church. That's not what this passage is about, and I'm not trying to tell you something that Jesus isn't saying. But what we will do is spend a few minutes thinking about what we treasure, how we see, and what we serve. If you were here last week, you heard a short overview about the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're going to be studying for the next month or so. This uh, sermon spans three chapters in the book of Matthew, which makes it the longest discourse, like the longest time that Jesus speaks in the gospel. And there is a scholarly debate about whether it was written uh, just as a single sermon that Jesus delivered or if the gospel writer took pieces from one sermon and another sermon and put them together. And quite frankly, I don't have very strong feelings one way or the other, um, and I don't want to spend a lot of time there because nobody who talks about this passage seems to dispute or disagree that what we have is what Jesus actually taught. So whether he said it in one sitting or over the span of a week or six months or whatever, doesn't change the truth or the value of it. So the Sermon on the Mount is what one of my seminary professors would have called a target-rich environment, which means that everywhere you look, there's something that you can dig into. Matthew 5 has the Beatitudes, which I'm sure you've heard. Blessed are the poor, the meek, the peacemakers, and so on. It also has the passage we looked at last week with Jesus' Ten Commandments, which all follow the form, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is going to teach the disciples the Lord's Prayer, and he gives one of the most famous biblical teachings on worry, which is what we're studying next week. And finally, Matthew 7 has that famous ask, and it will be given to you and what even people outside of the Christian faith know as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So right in the middle of all of that, we have this lesson about treasure. Jesus starts with a very clear warning. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. Now in Jesus' day, wealth could be accumulated in a couple different ways, and most of them are a little different. This was fine cloth, which they would make into articles of clothing, and that was a very common way to accumulate and share wealth. And just like today, some people had a lot of clothing, some had just a few pieces, and some were very ornate and elaborate, and some were more simple in style. But either way, it was a common cultural practice to actually keep your wealth in the form of clothing so that even among poor people, they would pass down garments from one generation to the next as part of their inheritance. The next way people would shops. Now, in other parts of the Bible, Jesus tells parables about people storing up grain. And this was a really common practice that his audience would have understood immediately as a stockpile of wealth. Now, stores of crops would be helpful because if a famine came, you could go ahead and eat your stores of crops. You wouldn't be hungry. 
Or if it was um, a different type of problem, you could sell your crops if you needed the income and the revenue. And finally, most familial, familiar to us, a gold and jewels and precious metals. So it's pretty clear to me that Jesus' warning here is not to not have or not use those things. None of us would survive very long without, without at least some kind of clothing and food and money. Because in and of themselves, these are not bad things. There, there's no way in which Jesus is saying, you need to be naked and hungry and broke. That's not the message. But there are also things that are subject to decay and destruction, or one morsel of food or one ounce of gold that's exempt from this rule. As I was studying this passage this week, I noticed for the first time a really interesting difference in how uh, some Bible translations handle verses 19 and 20. Some of them, depending what version you're reading, will say that moths and rust destroy treasures on earth, while others say moths and vermin destroy them. That's already kind of weird, right? Like moths and rust or moths, like we know this, are just not the same thing. Rust spreads across metals. Vermin is like a rat, a living creature. But that's not really the end of the story. I've also studied enough Greek, and I read it well enough that I noticed immediately that something a lot weirder was going on than thinking rust and vermin are the same thing. There is one Greek word that is translated, depending on your version of the Bible, either vermin or rust. That word is brosis, and it's a really common word in the New Testament. Sometimes when I... But if I didn't already know this passage in English, there's not a chance I would have said that it meant rust or vermin. Most of the time that this word appears in the New Testament, it means eating in the most natural sense of the word, like after church is over, I'm going to be eating lunch, or it's not a Super Bowl party until I eat some wings. Like it's eating in the sense that we know of every day. So I don't know if maybe Jesus wants us to think about rats, or maybe he wants, I think he wants us thinking of both of those types of things. The, the warning is that the treasures of clothing and grains and even gold can be eaten up by other things and destroyed. So moths are going to eat the clothing, vermin will eat the stores of grain, and rust, in time, will eat the coins. So the first danger of earthly treasure is that it's literally going to be eaten by something and completely lost to us. The second danger that Jesus points to is theft. So although there were some bankers, Jesus' time wouldn't have had bank accounts. Um, Since their wealth is split between clothing and grains and money, they had a lot less money, which translates to less of a need to leave it in a bank. Uh, It's the same principle as true today. If you have $20, you're going to stick it in your wallet. If you have $20,000, you're going to want something a little more secure. But because most people didn't have large sums of coins or gold or jewels, they would just kind of keep a stockpile in the house. It was the ancient equivalent of sticking it under the mattress, stash of gold or coins or whatever. A thief could come and break in, or more specifically, dig through the mud walls and steal that money. So, again, Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to have it, but that it's vulnerable to theft. The the Jewish law that Jesus would have learned and studied didn't forbid a person having possessions or wealth. That, That never came up. But what the Jewish law did forbid was becoming obsessed with it. This is the principle that Jesus is pointing towards here. So, like, clothing and and be stolen. If you've invested any of your money in the stock market, I don't need to explain how quickly fortunes can change or how dramatic a reversal of fortune in your stock portfolio can be. And I learned about the destruction of goods in a really first-hand way a couple of months ago. It was about six months ago, and I had a service tech at my house working on my air conditioner. 
In the course of the service call, he did do the repair that I had called him out to do, but he also somehow damaged the drain line that's supposed to carry the yard. Now, it was almost two weeks before I noticed the damage because for two weeks, all of the water that was supposed to be leaving my house and going out into the yard was pooling up on the cement floor beneath the wood floors in my dining room. By the time all was said and done, I had mold in the walls, floors that had to be replaced on the entire first floor of the house, and two months later, I got to deal with a leaking hot water heater. Now, I was fortunate in that I was welcomed, but I saw firsthand that earthly things do wear out and get destroyed. The things of earth, the material things that we have, no matter how well they're made or how thoroughly they're insured or how securely they're stored, they can all be destroyed or stolen. So Jesus' advice is not to do away with them altogether, but just not to be obsessed with them, not to set our hearts on them, not to make them our ultimate treasure. Instead, treasure up treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven is treasure that can't be eaten by moths or vermin or rust and can't be stolen by a thief. So what then is treasure in heaven? I think this one is a little less obvious than treasures on earth. Over the past week, I've heard and read a number of theories, and in Jewish tradition, um, the phrase treasure in heaven represents some kind of um, end time or eschatological reward and gives us for a life well lived, a life of obedience. And some even kind of tread this line where they say that heavenly rewards are like, or heavenly treasure is like a payment kind of for good deeds. But none of those ideas really work for me. Um, I, I have trouble with any theology that says that we earn God's favor or blessing through our actions and that our actions on earth should be motivated by the desire to get some kind of heavenly reward later on. I think of what we can do to earn it or what we can do to make ourselves worthy of it. See, fundamentally, treasures in heaven are totally different in every way from treasures on earth. So asking how we can earn it or what it looks like or how much we'll have, it just kind of reveals that we haven't changed our idea of what the treasure is. We've just kind of shifted in our minds if it's located on earth or in heaven. Treasure in heaven isn't going to be like magical clothing that doesn't get eaten by moths or genetically modified grain that never can't be robbed. To get what Jesus is talking about, we need to actually completely reframe the way we think about treasure in heaven. And that's what I think the rest of this passage does. Now at this point, I should tell you I could be wrong because I read maybe eight or ten different commentaries this week and none of them framed this passage in the way that I'm about to suggest. But nevertheless, I would like to suggest that Jesus is going to spend the rest of this passage illustrating it exactly really clearly, but more often than not, he speaks in parables and teaches in the abstract. And so if we read it literally, the next couple verses sound pretty disjointed. But if we read it more abstractly or more poetically in the way that Jesus tends to talk and teach, I think it's an example of Jesus taking his time and painting a complex picture about what treasure in heaven is. So first up, Jesus says that where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. In the Jewish world, it's the center of thought and of conscience and of will. It's kind of the the control center of the whole personality. So when Jesus says that's where your heart is, he's saying that whatever you value most determines your life's whole orientation because your heart is everything you have in you. Whatever the thing is that we treasure, that's what we shape our lives around. 
It's going to be the thing that occupies and guides our feelings and our thoughts and our actions. Cut it for that. They're not worthy of it because they're corruptible and they're impermanent. No wise person orients their life around something that can be taken. It's foolish, Jesus says, to orient our lives around something so fleeting. But by contrast, he's also starting to show us that treasure in heaven is going to be permanent and indestructible and secure. The eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus says, before going on to explain the importance of almost like a tongue twister or a riddle. Uh, But the point is pretty simple once you get down to it. So today, when we think about the eye, we're, we're likely to think of the eye letting light into the body. In terms of biology and the way humans are built, we we know now that that's what eyes do. They take in light and they transform them into images. And and it also lines up with our modern saying of, you know, the the eye is the window to the soul. But when Jesus is saying this, he probably means something kind of the opposite. Um, What he out of the body onto the world around it. So in this context, the big picture is that the treasure in heaven, which is what our heart is set on and the thing that we orient our lives around, determines what kind of light we shine out onto the world that we look at. In other words, our treasure impacts how we see the world. And this is where the illustration gets really interesting and and a little complicated. So Jesus draws a distinction between a good eye and an evil eye. And in the case of an eye or a generous eye, and by contrast, the evil eye, he, he uses a word that can also mean like jealous or greedy. So when our hearts are properly seated with our treasure in heaven, he, he in, a, in a short phrase, is saying, like, our eye is singularly focused on that treasure, and as a result, our view of the world is good and generous rather than jealous or greedy. To complete this idea of a singular focus and singular vision, Jesus uses the illustration of two men. The word that you see here is serve, it really means more like be a slave to. So a lot of people have had the, um, the experience of working for two bosses. Uh, even I, when I first started working at Corinth, I worked for Pastor Bob, and I also worked for the principal at the school where I was teaching. So I, I had two bosses. It was manageable. But that's different than what Jesus is saying, because I was not a slave to either one of them. In the ancient world, and even in one of what I would call a more shameful chapter, their every moment and every breath were at the disposal of their master. When that's what you have in mind when you see the word serve, you can see that it's impossible to serve two masters. Nobody can have two different people with competing agendas trying to exercise equal claim over his life and equal priority over his time and his energy. So at this point, I want you to be careful to stay with me because it's really tempting to check out and say, well, I don't serve anything. I might. That is a very 21st century American way of thinking, and in this case, not, not a good thing that we bring to the table. For Jesus, the question isn't whether we will serve something, but what we will serve. Jesus knows that in the end, every person is going to be a slave to something, and the choice centers on what we treasure the most. So Jesus presents two options. There's God and there's money. Depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, uh, you might see that it's God originally meant the money that people gave to bankers to keep secure for them. But over time, it came to be the thing in which people placed their trust rather than the, the thing they entrusted to another. So by the time Jesus gets to this point where he is giving the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's basically money personified as a master. So Jesus is saying, you can serve God or you can serve money. To wrap up his whole illustration, when he's finished painting this picture, 
There are two clear options that he's laid out. Earth, which are going to cloud our vision and lead us to look at the world with greed and jealousy and ultimately lead us to be slaves of money and materialism. Or we can set our heart on the things of heaven. And this life orientation will give us a clear and generous view of the world and ultimately lead us to single-minded service of God. A number of years ago, I heard a story about Warren Buffett that stuck with me and was rattling around. Sorry, let's start with the obvious. Warren Buffett is not Jesus. Not trying to equate Warren Buffett to Jesus in any way. He's made some great business decisions. He's been very charitable with some of his money. I respect all of that. But he's also made personal and professional decisions that I can't put my stamp of approval on. But this one story, I think, is super useful. As the story goes, Warren Buffett is talking to his pilot one day, and he asks him, what pilot start talking? And Warren Buffett sends him away with an assignment. He says, I want you to write down your top 25 goals, the 25 things you most want to accomplish in life. So the pilot goes, and he makes his list, and he comes back to Mr. Buffett with a list of 25 things that are meaningful and significant to him. And Warren looks over the list and says, good, now circle your top five. So the pilot looks at the list again, and he tries to prioritize and tries to order. And Mr. Buffett looks at him and said, good, those five, that's your to-do list. That's what you should focus on. And then as the pilot's getting ready to leave, Warren Buffett asks him, but what about items 6 through 25? What are you going to do with those? So the pilot thinks about it, and he says, well, I guess those are the things that I'm going to work on as I have time and as I see that I'm making progress towards my top five goals. They'll kind of be my secondary priority. Them, no, that's your not-to-do list. You get rid of those things entirely. Don't ever focus on numbers six through 25. Not one moment of your time or one ounce of your energy goes into that until you have completely achieved all of your top five. So why does this business tycoon tell this pilot to get rid of items 6 through 25? I think that it's because in this case, he's so distracted with something good that we miss out on something great and that we can turn our focus to things that we care about and lose sight of the things that we live for. Items 6 through 5 on Buffett's list are a little like money in Jesus' story. They aren't inherently bad things. In fact, they might be really good and important things. But they're the worst kind of dangerous when they pull our attention away from our ultimate goal and divide on the not-to-do list. We put our to-do list in jeopardy. By going after treasure on earth, we risk missing out on treasure in heaven. So just one question remains. What is that treasure in heaven? According to the picture that Jesus is painting in this passage, the treasure in heaven is the thing that we're supposed to orient our lives around, the very thing that defines how we see the world, and the thing that we Christians are to tread. And the more I studied, it became increasingly obvious that our treasure in heaven isn't a what at all. It's a who. Jesus. Our treasure in heaven is Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God, who intercedes before the Father's throne, who has prepared a place for us to be with him, who has bought and redeemed us with his blood. That truth is the thing that Christians orient our lives around. That's the truth that shapes how we see the world. And that is else. 
You see, treasure in heaven is God, and treasure on earth is God's creation. Since we live on earth and we're surrounded by earthly things and we can see and hear and taste and touch and smell so much of God's creation, it's so easy for us to get attached to it. And that's why Jesus spends so much time warning us about it. Creation, the earth and everything in it, is not bad. It's not evil. God made it about the creator. Are you more passionate about creation or about the one who created it? Or if you want to change the metaphor a little bit, are you more enthralled by the gifts you've been given or by the one who gave them to you? Whatever the things are that we have and love, be they money or family or health or home or community or whatever, they're all things that we did not create. Now, at this point, money I have, or, you know, I exercise and eat well and don't smoke. I'm taking great care of my health, or I've invested a lot of time in the relationships I have. That's good. I commend you. Those are excellent ways to steward the gifts you've been given. But you didn't decide what family you would be born into, or what genes you would have, or that you would wake up this morning with a beating heart. That was all God. You, you may be taking good, and you didn't earn them. Too often and too easily, we look to the things that God has entrusted to us, and, and we fail to see them as gifts that we're allowed to steward. And we see them instead as objects that become our God. Now, the, the Bible has a really good word for that. The word is idolatry. Jesus' warning in Matthew 6 is ultimately a warning against idolatry. Anytime you choose creation over the creator, our choice in its simplest terms is to have a single-minded focus on God or to make an idol of something God has created. Jesus' call is not to hate money, and he doesn't say it's evil to have it. At other places in the Bible, he will tell people to sell everything and give all of their possessions to the poor. But here, in this passage... The call is simply to have a radical, countercultural dependence on God rather than on yourself. To try to ever care for ourselves. And sometimes that means accepting that God's care isn't always going to look like material comfort or luxury. Instead, we're to orient our lives around our treasure in heaven. And when we set our hearts on Jesus and we learn to see the world as he sees it, that changes us. Our eyes, our view of the world becomes clear and generous. We see the possessions that we've been given, however many or great steward, not our goods to hoard up. We see other people not as burdens, but as opportunities for compassion and care and generosity. And we look for chances to build God's kingdom with our time and our talents and, yes, even our money. But we do all of this not because we're hoping for a crown full of jewels or for accolades or for a seat of honor and a heavenly banquet. We, we do it because our eyes are fixed on Jesus, whose our wealth we might have is just a temporary fleeting good that we happen to be taking care of right now. We do it because we choose to be defined by our treasure in heaven, not by our possessions or by the standards of the world. And we do it because our ultimate desire is to serve God. And we know that being a slave to anything less than God is just not acceptable. Having a treasure in heaven changes everything. It changes our priorities and the way we serve. There's a whole lot that I don't know, but 
this much I do know. There is no greater treasure that this world has to offer, no person or thing no more worthy of worship than the treasure that we already have in heaven. Do you pray with me? Lord, you have given us such elaborate gift of your son, Jesus, and we are so in awe of the else this world has to offer. As we look around the world and as we interact with the world, Lord, would you give us hearts that know that creation is good because you made it, but you're so much better than anything you've created. Give us the heart and the, the eyes to, to focus all of our attention and our efforts on you, on pursuing you as our treasure, not storing up treasures for ourselves. Help us to depend every moment of every day on you because breath and of everything we could ever hope to have. We ask that you would teach us to pray as you taught your disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is Amen.